It is finished. Price has been paid. We've been redeemed. It's nothing more that we can do to be more saved than we already are. You've forgiven us. You've adopted us. You've accepted us. You've made us new creations in Christ. We thank you and we praise you for that. Lord, and in the midst of all of that, Lord, our desire is to be closer to you, to walk in, in intimate fellowship with you. So, Lord, we ask as we go to your word that your Holy Spirit would speak in a mighty and a powerful way. Give us ears to hear what your Spirit would say to us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Go ahead and have a seat. If you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 3. If you don't have one, there should be one in the seat right in front of you somewhere. So go ahead and grab that because you're going to need it. Got to make sure I'm not up here spouting a bunch of noise, right? Got to make sure it's in the Bible. The only way you can do that is if you've got it open yourself. All right. We're in the book of Revelation, as we've talked about the last many weeks, that it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, which means the unveiling of Jesus Christ. So if you want to know Jesus better, you need to spend time in this book. This book is avoided by a lot of people because a lot of people find it hard to understand. But God did not give us books in the Bible to be avoided, but to be studied and read and to to take them and allow them to transform our lives. Amen? So we don't skip over verses, skip over the hard stuff. Otherwise, we'd be in the Gospels all the time, right? But we're in here for a reason. God has us here, and he wants to teach us. Now, chapter 2 and 3. Chapter 1 reveals the person of Christ in heaven. I want you to go back and read that. You get to see who he is in heaven. Chapter 2 and 3, we get to see the letters to the seven churches. If we want to know what our Savior says about the church, Revelation 2 and 3 are the places to go. And even though he's speaking to churches 2,000 years ago, they have direct application to us today. The first church we looked at was the church at Ephesus. Remember, they were the loveless church. They were doing a lot of good works, but there was no love. And there was a call by the Lord for them to return to intimacy with him. The second church we looked at was Smyrna. They were the persecuted church. If you remember that in the world's eyes, they were considered poor because they refused to compromise. They refused to go up and make sacrifices to the Roman emperor. And because they wouldn't do that, they couldn't get jobs. They couldn't find homes. They couldn't trade. And often their families were persecuted and even martyred for their faith because they would not make a small compromise. You know, we budge over a lot less than they did. But what a great example for us, the church at Smyrna. Then we got to the church of Pergamos. They were the compromising church. Remember, they allowed the doctrine of Balaam in, the false teachers to come in, false things to be taught. And then the same thing last week in Thyatira, which is the corrupt church. Remember, they elevated the word of men above the word of God. And this is still going on in the church today. Just because someone calls himself a prophet or somebody wears a robe or somebody stands behind a pulpit doesn't mean that their word is really the word of God. It must be checked against the word of God. Amen. God's word is the final authority and we can't fall for these false prophets if we spend time. If we're, if we're biblically illiterate, we can fall for any lie. But if we know the word of God, we'll recognize the lie. That brings us to this morning's text. In this morning's text, we're going to look at the church at Sardis. And the church at Sardis is referred to as the dead church. But what we're going to see about this dead church is it looks a little different than what you and I might think of as a dead church. When I think of a dead church, and maybe you're with me, I think of a, maybe a church with no activity, probably an old broken down building, dead worship, few people, and the way I term it, cobwebs with an out of tune organ, right? You know, a dead church, just nothing happening. But as we're going to see the Lord's response to a dead church, it's quite different. 
Because he sees not just the activity. Matter of fact, the dead church we're going to look at this morning has a lot of activity. Appears to the world to be a happening place to be and a great church to go to. So there's a lot of activity. Maybe even have, you know, in today's terms, a brand new building and a lot of technology. Don't be fooled by the website. You need to make sure we know the Lord in here. Amen? Make sure the word of God's being taught. But what can happen is a lot of activity can fool people. But you know what the Lord says is a dead church? A dead church is a church where the Holy Spirit is not at work. You can have all kinds of activity and no Holy Spirit. By your flesh, you can make a lot of events take place. You can fill up a a calendar with a lot of activity. But if the Holy Spirit is not the one leading and moving it, that will be a dead church. And that's the church at Sardis. So let's begin. And I've got an outline. And I titled the message, Wake Up. And a subtitle to it, Breathing Life into a Dead Church. We're going to see this dead church. We're going to see the things that make this church dead. May those be warnings to us and exhortations to us, not only as a church, but as individuals. And then along with those, we're going to see at the end the promise for those who remain faithful, even when the world around them is dead. Because you've got to remember, in each of these cities, there was only one church. It wasn't like you could leave the church on this corner and go to the church on that corner if you didn't like what was happening. So the church was dead itself. The Holy Spirit, as we're going to see, was not moving the way it should be. But there was still a remnant in that church that was faithful to God. So the outline quickly. First, we see breathing life into a new church. Wake up. A church dies because it ceases to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, it ceases to be disciplined. Thirdly, it wanders from the truth. And then finally, it stops taking the promise of righteous judgment seriously. Another way to say that, no fear of God. Then the second portion we'll see, along with the, way the, the attributes of a church that's dying, we'll see the promised rewards for the faithful. First, intimate fellowship with the Lord, and then the assurance of eternal life. So let's begin there in verse 1 of Revelation chapter 3. Wake up, breathing life into a dead church. A dead church dies first because it ceases to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 1. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write. Remember who's speaking? Who's speaking? Jesus Christ. If you've got a good Bible, it's got red letters in there, right? And if it's got red letters, you know that's Jesus speaking. And when Jesus is speaking, he's speaking to John, who then transcribes it and is now delivering it to the churches. But to the angel of the church, we've talked about this the last four weeks in a row, so I'll just make it brief. The angel, I personally believe, the word there is messenger, he's speaking to the pastor. So John shows up and he hands this letter to the pastor and says, hey, Almighty God, Jesus Christ, creator of the universe, our Savior and our Lord, has a message for you, and here it is. If you're the pastor, how would you feel? Whoa, right? And he has to open that up and find out what the Lord says. Now, in most cases, there's a word of first describing his character, telling him about himself, reminding him of, of reminding that church something about himself that they have obviously forgotten because of their behavior. Then he would usually give a commendation. These are the things you're doing well. And then he would go on to talk about the things that needed to change and then the reward if they did change. Now, this letter doesn't follow that exact pattern, but we can see this letter is written by the Lord. It's spoken by the Lord, written by John, given to the pastor, and now the people are going to have to respond. 
So what does he have to say to Sardis? Now, before we move on, as I do every week, when we get to a new city, I want to tell you a little bit about that city because understanding what's going on there and what the believers were living with helps us understand the letter that's being written to them. Now, Sardis, about 30 miles away from Thyatira, and morally, it was like all the other cities we've looked at so far, godless. They were living in a godless city that was heavily involved in pagan idolatry, and part of their worship was drunkenness and sexual immorality that attempted to legitimize these form of worships, to, forms of worship to these pagan idols. So the people all around them were involved in pagan idolatry and were worshiping these false gods. Like the other cities, several of them, it was a very wealthy city because it was located right in the center of five roads that came together. And in those days, people traveled on the roads, right? Horseback, carriages, whatever they brought, and they would go... And when they came to a city, there was a place where they could make trade. And it was right in the center between the east and the west where people would pass through. And so that blessed the city to be extremely wealthy because all the tradespeople were there. It was a city that was a place where people wanted to go if they wanted to find work. You want to find work? Go to Sardis. That place is jumping. Go down there. There's tradespeople there. There's a lot going on. It's a place to find work. Now, this city was... 2,000 years old at the time this was written. And it wasn't quite where it had been in its greatest days. Prior, it had been one of the most formidable cities in the world because it was a city that was up on top of a peak about 1,500 feet high. And it was surrounded on three sides by a mountain with sheer cliffs. And the only way to get into that city was one direction. So that meant that it was very defendable. It was like a fortress. So it was a wealthy city that was filled with immorality that had very little fear of ever being attacked. So the citizens who lived there lived in wealth and in luxury and were very soft people, were very unconcerned about anything bad ever happening to them because they lived inside of a fortress. And because of that, they became you know, very happy with their lives and had very little thought about God. If you ever notice, a lot of times the people that struggle, you struggle the most reaching with the gospel are the ones that look at their life and think they're doing really well here. Well, I'm comfortable. I've got everything I could ever want, except you need salvation. You're a sinner in need of a savior. I don't care how much money you have, amen? Now, they don't like to hear that. Well, my life's pretty good right now. Well, this life's gonna end, amen? And it's, gonna, where it's all gonna come to an abrupt end for all of us someday. So this was a city that had thrived and a city that had done well. But you know what had happened? And this is a lesson for them, and it's going to play right into the text as we look at it. The city that's filled with, with wealth and pursuers of fleshly pleasure who felt they had nothing and no one could ever touch them, and they deserved um, you know, everything that they had. Well, guess what? Because they, weren't, they did not even have guards. And so they would just, hey, we're a fortress. Who's going to mess with us? Nobody can touch us. Well, the city was 1,400 years old, and around 600 B.C., King Cyrus attacked the city by climbing up the outside of the sheer cliffs. And because they were not paying attention, when he got to the top, there were no guards there, and he ran over the top of them and took control of the city. Well, later they got control of the city back at some point, and 400 years later, the same thing happened again. They're laying in their city. They feel like they don't need to, have to watch out for anything. They feel like they're in defense. You know, we're, hey, no one can touch us. We've got nothing to worry about. We've got everything the world could ever want. 
So this overall softness and lack of diligence and discipline led to Sardis being defeated on more than one occasion. And it was apathy and overconfidence that led to their defeat. You know, lack of diligence and discipline brings about demise. And that's exactly what happened to the, to the city of Sardis. So Sardis still exists, and it seems to still be functioning fairly well, but it's not quite the city it once was. It's a shadow of its former splendor. So the church in Sardis, unfortunately, had become like the city. The city thought, well, hey, we're all good. We got nothing to worry about. They became undisciplined. They weren't, you know, they were not being diligent, and the church followed its pattern. We need to be careful that we as the church do not follow the culture. Amen? We don't look around and say, well, that's the way the world does it. Let's follow the world. Very few things frustrate me as much as seeing the church trying to become like the world. Guys, we need to become like Jesus, not like the world. And then the world will want what we have when we have peace in the midst of a perverse and wicked generation. The church was functioning outwardly, but they were spiritually dead. And Sardis is a great warning to all churches who were great at one time in the past. Sardis had been great, but because of their lack of discipline, because they had become soft, the, the city had been overrun. And the same thing can happen to a church. Every year we go to the senior pastor's conference, almost without fail, Pastor Chuck will take at least one message to talk to us about the movement of Calvary Chapel. And one of the things he always talks about is that if we ever cease to be desperate and fully reliant upon the Holy Spirit, if we ever cease to boldly and lovingly proclaim the whole counsel of God, this movement will become a memorial and its buildings will become monuments to what, what once was. You see that today. You go into cities and you go into a big, beautiful church building. Ever visited some of those? And you walk in, nobody there. And nobody's ever there. It's become a museum. Back in the day, the word of God was taught here. And now, it's a museum. Heaven forbid that our building should ever become a museum to what once was. Amen? This is an exhortation that, that we see in Sardis for all churches today not to rely on past success, but to recognize that we need to remain desperate for God. We need to be faithful to his word. And again, walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. And if we ever cease to do that, the movement will become a memorial and its buildings will become monuments. And that's where Sardis is. They're in the monument phase. They're at a place where their church is basically dead and they don't even know it. And that's kind of scary if you think about it. Because it tells us that there are people that can be living in a dead church and not even know the difference. Because you know what? And I'll be, just be honest with you, and I'll get to the text, I promise. But I went out on a sales call this week at a denominational church that was extremely liberal. And I was actually looking forward to sitting down with the pastor and the administrator because I wanted to hear kind of what their heart was. And I started asking them, and the first thing they told me was, our church is 130 years old. We've been in this spot for 130 years. It's over in, uh, up in Sunnyvale. And I'm like, okay, that's great. And you know what? Every week, and th- um, this is a good thing, every week we, f- we feed 300 homeless people. I'm like, that's wonderful. That's something we should do as a church, reach out and minister to those who are hungry without question. But then I kept waiting. So tell me what the vision and the passion of this church is, Pastor. Tell me what it is your heart is. Well, we want to be really involved in the community. I said, great. And what would you like to do with the community? Well, you know, just last month, we won a landscaping award for our, our facility because it's so nicely landscaped. I said, you know what? You got a beautiful facility. It's really nice. Tell me what else you would like to have happen during the time that you're here as a church. What would you like to see your church doing? 
Well, you know, we want people to do, have weddings here. I said, okay, that's great. Have weddings here. What else? I asked this question for 45 minutes. I never heard Jesus one time. I never heard the word of God one time. You know what I heard was, well, we got to kind of adapt and our, our congregation's getting older and, you know, we got to kind of please them. And so I have to change what I'm doing to make sure that they're comfortable and happy. And so he started asking about our church and he goes, so tell me what your, tell me what your heart is. I said, it's the Great Commission. Our calling is to go therefore into all the world and preach the gospel, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And my job as a pastor is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And how do we do that? We teach the whole counsel of God. Do it in truth, do it in love, and do it without compromise. Amen? But guys, it can all change like that. It can all change like that. I, I praise God we have a building to meet in, but the church is not the building, it's the people. Amen? Oh, we got a new stained glass window. You got to come see it. He took me out there and showed me the stained glass window. And I'm like, bro, that's really nice. It's a nice stained glass window. And? And I'm going to pray for him. You know, and I gave him my card, and I, he said he was going to go and listen to one of my messages. Hopefully it's not this one, but. If you're live stream, I'm right here. God bless you. Lord loves you, and I'm glad we met. And like Sardis, it's not too late to make things change. Amen? So, Sardis' greatest achievements were all in the past. They were all behind him. What's going on? This is two weeks in a row. Technology. Blessing or curse, I'm not sure which. All right. So, Sardis was a city that had seen its better days, was still looking to the past often, and now things were falling apart, and the church was falling in its footsteps. I guess I'm using this mic now, right? And the church was falling in its footsteps. It had become undisciplined. It had become lackadaisical. And as we're about to see, Jesus has an opinion about this church. So the angel to the church in Sardis write, and here's what he says. These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Remember when the Lord gives his character, he always gives with his character something that that church needed to be reminded of. So what does he remind them of? The seven spirits of God. Now, how many Holy Spirits are there? One. If you go to Isaiah, we don't have time to do this, but you get the seven attributes of the Holy Spirit mentioned in Isaiah. It talks about knowledge and wisdom and all those things. And he's talking about the fullness of the Holy Spirit. He's reminding them that he is fully God. He has the fullness of the Holy Spirit available to him and the fullness of the Holy Spirit that can be poured out upon them. He's reminding this church that is no longer walking in the power of the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit is still available to them. Seven in the Bible is the number of fullness or completeness. And so the fullness of the Holy Spirit is available to this church. When was the church born? What chapter of the Bible? Acts chapter what? Acts chapter 2. They were waiting in chapter 1, and the Holy Spirit came in chapter 2. I guess I, have to, I can't move now. I've got to stand right here. <laughs> Chaining me down. But here's the point. It's good for me. Acts chapter 2 is where the Holy Spirit was birthed. And how was the Holy Spirit birthed when the, whole, I mean the church birthed when the Holy Spirit came upon them? Prior to that, again, they were walking with the Lord. Prior to that, they were denying the Savior. You remember that? They were running and hiding. They were not remaining faithful. And then the Holy Spirit came upon them, and 3,000 souls were added to the church in a single day. That's when the church was birthed. 
Guys, the way that the church was birthed is the same way that the church is going to continue to be successful. It must be under the control of and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so he's reminding this dead church, you've left the Holy Spirit, and you've got a bunch of stuff going on here, but there's no fruit. There's nothing good coming of it. The Holy Spirit gives life to a church. To the church. And if a church is dead, if our walk is lukewarm, if our devotion and prayer life are dry, what needs is a fresh what we need is a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Can I tell you something? I pray every morning to be filled afresh with the Holy Spirit because I leak. Amen. <laughs> you pray the first time to be filled, the Holy Spirit is with you, in you, at salvation, it comes upon you. Jesus breathed the Spirit in them in the Gospels, but then they went and waited till the Holy Spirit came upon them. So there's a subsequent baptism or filling or indwelling. I don't care what you call it, just get it. Amen? So the Holy Spirit upon us is what we need, but then you see them later praying for the Holy Spirit to come upon them afresh. Well, we need that, and our church needs that. And when we cease to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, we're on our way to being a dead church. All the church's man-made programs in the world can never bring life any more than a circus can resurrect a corpse. Amen? You can have all the programs, all the stuff. You can, follow, you can get a book out on how to grow your church through man-made programs, and you can draw a crowd. But if the Holy Spirit's not at work, it's a big waste of time. This is what the church in Sardis needed, a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit is grieved, the church begins to lose life and power. How do we bring the Holy Spirit back into the church? Not only do we pray for it, but we confess our sin, we get right with God and each other, and then the Holy Spirit will bring new life into the church. Guys, it's when we walk in holiness, it's when we obey the Lord without reservation that we're going to see revival. So the spirits of God and the seven stars. Again, the stars speaks of the pastors. And sometimes when the church is dying, it's the pastor's fault. That's a fact. Believe me, I take that very seriously. I walked out to my car after that sales call the other day, and I said, Lord, before you let me get like that, strike me down dead, please. And I meant it. The last thing I want is to be the CEO or the activities director of Calvary Chapel. Right? This is, you know, we're not the Elks Club. This is a church. And because it's a church, we're the bride of Christ. And because we're the bride of Christ, we're here to glorify and honor Him and to know Him better. That's what the church is about. Sardis had forgotten that. They'd gotten caught up in everything else but what God had called them to do. The church at Sardis was dead. The Holy Spirit was not at work in their church. It was, again, it's a spirit alone who gives life. And Jesus has the power to resurrect this church. That's a good thing about if a church is dead, it can always be resurrected because God raises people from the dead and he can raise churches from the dead. I absolutely believe that. Amen. Can he bring revival to a dead church without question? I truly believe all it would take is one person called by God, faithful to God, who was put into a position to transform and turn that entire church around. I absolutely believe that. It's like when David showed up when they were fighting that Philistines, right? Everybody was scared to death. And then David showed up. And what happened? The Holy Spirit entered into the camp because the Holy Spirit was upon David and everything changed. And David saw it from a spiritual perspective. And you know what? One godly person sold out for him, who's got their eyes on him, can transform a dead and dying church. Then he says this. 
This is Jesus speaking to the church at Sardis. I know your works, that you have a name, and that you are alive. Now, what does that mean? I know your works. Jesus says this to each church. He knows what a church is, what a church does. It's never hidden from the Lord. And so he knows the truth about this church, and he knows the truth about you and me. We can come here on Sunday and play church, can't we? Put on the Christian face. Praise the Lord, brother. Right? Screaming at your wife in the parking lot and then getting here. Praise the Lord, brother. Right? You can absolutely do that. I've gone on sales calls, and I'm talking to somebody. They find I'm a pastor. And their whole attitude changes immediately. Like, what? Oh, you're a pastor. And then all of a sudden, they find I'm a pastor, and then... Oh, praise the Lord, brother. The Christian face comes out. Oh, I fellowship in such and such a place. And oh, yeah, that's such a wonderful thing. And oh, praise God. And I'm, whoa. <laughs> Hypocrite means to be an actor. To pretend to be something that you're not. Be careful. Amen? So, the Lord knows the truth about this church. He knows the truth about us. The word works there means acts, deeds, labor. It speaks of working unto exhaustion. The church at Sardis was not free of activity. Apparently, a lot was happening. Outwardly probably appeared to be a very vibrant church, a lot of activity, a lot of ministries. And again, notice there it said it had a name. That word had a name means they had a reputation. So the people on the outside, that church in Sardis had a reputation as being alive in a happening place. Guys, if you have a good reputation with the world, that's not always good. And again, I'm not saying we should be, have a reputation with the world that we're a bunch of jerks and we're self-righteous or anything like that. But at the same time, if the reputation is, yeah, go hang out with those guys. Stuff's happening down there, but there's never any conviction. And there's never any salvation. Something's wrong. And so we see here that they have a name and that you are alive. The word you're alive, their reputation from the outward appearance, again, was that they were a church that was very, had a lot of vitality. Meeting, probably meetings every night, numerous programs, community involvement, people coming in and out, maybe a new stained glass window, I don't know. But they had all the new stuff. And it seemed from the outward appearance that this was a happening place to go to church. But the Lord has something else to say. Here's what Jesus says. But you are dead. That's kind of direct teaching, isn't it? That's teaching with clarity, as uh, Damien Kyle likes to say. Teaching with clarity. You are dead. The world says you have a great reputation. You're alive. You're doing all this stuff. Oh, by the way, you're dead. Ouch. How'd you like to be the pastor reading this letter? You are dead. Well, that's not good. We've got to change something here. <laughs> you guys, it's not how we see ourselves that count. It's not how men see us that counts. It's how God sees us that counts. And the church at Sardis looked really good from the outside, but the Lord cut right to the heart. You are dead. And again, a good reputation is no guarantee of true godly character. We may fool men, but we won't fool God. So they had a lot of activity, but no lasting fruit. Entertaining a crowd, but making no disciples. The word dead there also tells us something else. It indicates there was no struggle, no fight, and no persecution. This is the first church we've seen so far facing no persecution. You know why there's no persecution in the church at Sardis? Because they're dead. Satan's resources are limited. You understand that, right? He's not God. He's not close to God. He's not the opposite of God. He's not near God. He's nothing compared to God. Amen? Amen. So, he can only be so many places, and he only has so many followers. And you know what he's not going to do? Waste his time on a dead church. 
He's going to attack those who are being used mildly by God. And so Sardis, you see Smyrna being persecuted. Why? Because they won't compromise. And they're standing for the things of God. Sardis, where there's very few, as we're going to see when you get to the end of the text, walking with the Lord, he just kind of leaves them alone. Look, I'm not going to waste my time with them. Some of you might say, well, I've, you know, I've been a Christian for 15 years. I've never been persecuted. Okay. Might be time to step it up a bit. Amen. I mean, I heard a pastor say this once. I've shared it here before. He said, I want to be so on fire for God that Satan knows my name. I thought, I want to be so on fire for God that Satan almost knows my name. <laughs> right? I want to be just below the cutoff. Right? Sardis, you could care less about him. There's no fruit there. Nobody's getting saved. Lives aren't being changed. As a matter of fact, people are on their way to hell without Jesus and being entertained in their church and have no idea. I had to help them with their budget or something. Keep them running. Because nothing good is coming of it. It wasn't that the church at Sardis was losing the battle. A dead body has lost the battle, and the fight is over. In this letter, Jesus doesn't encourage the Christians in Sardis to stand strong against the persecution of false doctrine. Again, probably because there was no danger and there was no threat of that type at that time. Isn't it interesting how clearly different Jesus sees churches than the world? Because from the world's perspective, Sardis was a vibrant, happening church with a great reputation. But from the Lord's perspective, it was dead. The Lord is far more concerned with the lost being saved, the saved being discipled, his father being glorified, sinners being called to repentance, rebellious Christians to restoration, the Holy Spirit working in and through the church, God's children remaining faithful in the face of trials and persecution, and impacting a lost and a dying world with the truth of the gospel than any amount of activity or our reputation before men or how many people we entertain on Sunday. That's the Lord's heart. And he looked at Sardis. Okay, you're drawing a crowd, you're entertaining people, but the key to all of this is we need to be bringing people to Jesus. Can I say this too? It's good to do good works, but if we're doing good works, it ought to be a bridge to tell people about Jesus. Because if it's not, it's a waste of time. Well, we went down and we planted some flowers. That's great. Did you tell people about Jesus while you were there? Amen? I mean, forgive me if I'm being a little cynical, but sometimes you see that. I'll talk to somebody, and they'll, and they'll, they'll go to great expense, spend their own time, their own money, spend weeks. They'll go away to a foreign country. What did you do while you were there? Well, we helped build a couple houses. That's wonderful. It really is. I'm being sincere. That's wonderful. Praise God for that. But you make sure that if you give a cup of cold water to somebody, you do it in Jesus' name. Because it can't be fruitful if we don't point them to the one all we've done is make someone more comfortable on their way to hell. I didn't come for this today, did you, right? It, it, that's the reality. Our, our heart and our job and our calling is to see the lost saved, not the lost comfortable. Amen? Now, again, love on them, minister to them, care for them, plant flowers, paint houses, do those things, but make sure that somewhere in there we're pointing people to Jesus. Here's a sobering thought before we move on to verse 2. We may deceive others, and like Sardis, we may even deceive ourselves, and yet be as dead a church or as believers as the church in Sardis. We can deceive ourselves, we can deceive men, but ultimately, as we know, we cannot deceive God. 
You know, we need to be walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. There cannot be fruit in the church or in our lives apart from the empowering of the Holy Spirit. There cannot be revival in the church or in our lives apart from the empowering of the Holy Spirit. There cannot be repentance of the lost or restoration for the believer apart from the drawing and conviction of the Holy Spirit. The success of a church is directly proportionate to its level of submission to the Holy Spirit to empower, teach, equip, correct, and give us understanding of God's word. Apart from that, it's a waste of time. Amen? Amen. What do we need more of in this church? The Holy Spirit. We need to be filled. What did John the Baptist say? Jesus said, of men born among women, there's been none greater than John the Baptist. So if Jesus said it, then it's a fact. Amen? So the greatest man who ever lived outside of Jesus Christ up to that point was John the Baptist. And what did John the Baptist say? I must decrease that he might increase. So the greatest man who ever lived, according to Jesus Christ, said, it's got to be less of me and more of him. If that's true of him, it's really true of us. Amen? Got to be less of us and more of him. So wake up, breathing life into a dead church. A church dies because it ceases to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. It trusts in its reputation before men more than it's standing before God. Number two, it ceases to be disciplined. It doesn't fulfill God's calling. God has a calling on your life. God has a calling on my life. And God has a calling on this church's life. Amen? Look at verse two. So you're dead. Be watchful. And strengthen the things which remain, that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. A church dies because it ceases to be disciplined. He says, be watchful, and literally in the Greek, that word means wake up. That's where I got the title of the message. He basically looks at him, you're dead, wake up. Your church is dead. You've stopped functioning as a church. You're all about activities. You're having no impact on eternity. Time to wake up. And then he says, not only wake up, and that is the first step, by the way, in a dying church, is waking up to the fact that something is wrong. You know, they become ineffective through self-sufficiency, carelessness, a lack of godly discipline and discernment by turning a deaf ear to the Holy Spirit, and Jesus tells them, wake up. Listen afresh to the Lord. Be filled afresh with the Holy Spirit. Take an honest and open look at where you are and what you're doing, and then respond as the Holy Spirit leads. Wake up. Maybe that's a word for some of us this morning. Maybe we've been on the lukewarm cruise with the Lord. Can I encourage you? And Pastor Brian, I'm going to steal this directly from him. He said it yesterday morning, and I liked it, so pastors steal from each other. Fits in your gun, shoot it, right? One of the things he said yesterday that really I really loved, he said, there is no valid excuse for you not to spend time with the Lord every single day. And he said, come up if you think you've got an excuse that's valid, and I'll shoot it down, but come on up. And the reality is there is no valid. Well, I've got to work 16 hours a day. You've got eight left. Right? Sleep a half an hour less. Will God bless it? Let's spend time with the Lord. Amen. Well, this church had ceased to be disciplined. They were not having a devotional time. They were not spending time in the Word. They were not spending time seeking after God. Their prayer lives, no doubt, were dry. The Lord told them their their walk was dead. But He's telling them, wake up. And then He says, and strengthen the things which remain. The word strengthen means to set fast, to turn resolutely into a certain direction. It tells us that 
through the spiritual condition of the church in Sardis is bad. Though it's bad, it wasn't hopeless because there was still a remnant there that loved God. And there were still some things that could honor God. And he says, you find those things and you hold fast to them. You find the things in, that, in the local church where the Holy Spirit is still at work or where the Holy Spirit wants to work and you hold fast to them. Jesus had not given up on them. While it was late, it said there, they are ready to die. So they're ready to die. But God can still bring revival. Picture again of God's grace as he seeks to revive those who are dying spiritually. His exhortation to a dying church is to wake up, recognize the Holy Spirit is still moving in your church, and hold fast to him. In the areas where the Holy Spirit is not moving, just let it go. And then he says, I have not found your works perfect before God. This shows that they had works, shows that they were present, but it did not measure up to God's standard. The mere presence of good works, again, is not enough. Are there cults that do good works? What's the answer? Absolutely. But that doesn't mean that God's hand is upon them. God looks at the heart and the motivation behind the works. The word there, perfect, means, again, uh, to make full or to cause to abound, or to supply liberally, or to complete. I have found that your works are not full or complete. The works of the church in Sardis were done with the wrong heart, the wrong motivation, and they were not completed. What was their motivation? I don't know for sure. It may have been to draw a crowd. Hey, we want to draw a crowd. How do we do that? We have Bozo the Clown next Wednesday night, and just bring everybody in, right? I don't know, flying Walendas on Sunday. I mean, whatever you got to do to bring in people, to entertain a crowd, draw them in, get them here, get them here, and look how wonderful we're doing. We can report back to the bishop that our church is growing. Guys, it's not about the church growing, it's about the people growing. Amen? And if the people grow, the church will grow. Because healthy sheep will beget healthy sheep. So, they were not fulfilling the call upon their lives. And again, while it's possible in and of ourselves to do good works and charitable works in the world's eyes, without the empowering of the Holy Spirit, such works will have no impact on eternity. What does the Holy Spirit desire to do above everything else? It's not a trick question. Glorify Jesus Christ. That's the right answer. Now, he brings conviction to us. He brings comfort to us. But his number one reason for existing is to glorify the Son. And the same is true of the Son. It's to glorify the Father. And so, if the Holy Spirit is at work, then Jesus Christ will be glorified. Amen? And if he is not being glorified, then the Holy Spirit is not at work. It's that simple. The focus of our good works should not be to make ourselves feel better, but that our Savior would be glorified. Amen? Not go out and just do things. And again, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, visit the sick, love the unlovable, bless your boss, minister to your neighbors, but also be faithful to complete the work by pointing them to Jesus Christ, by giving them the gospel, ministering not only to their physical needs, but their spiritual needs as well. Jesus said in Matthew 5, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and what? Glorify your Father in heaven. Not see your good works so you th- they'll think you're really cool people. See your good works so they'll just have a big smile on their face. No, see your good works that they may glorify your Father in heaven. A church dies because it ceases to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, because it ceases to be disciplined. Third, because it's, it wanders from the truth. Look at verse 3. 
Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard, hold fast and repent. Remember. Remember what? The word remember there means to recollect, to make mention, to rehearse. In the midst of all their busyness, they had lost sight of the simplicity of the gospel and lost touch with their desperate need to walk in the Holy Spirit. And he says, remember how you received and heard. How joyfully the church had originally received the amazing truth of the gospel and the Holy Spirit coming upon them. This is what the church had heard, the truth that had received, and the Holy Spirit had walked in and with them and among them and upon them. He says, remember. He didn't say what. He says, how? Remember how you received it. Remember how the Spirit came upon you. Remember how your life was transformed. Remember how hungry you were for the Word of God. Remember, go back to that. That's the exhortation we see here from our Savior. This church had heard the truth. This church had started well. But sadly, over time, faith and spiritual intimacy with God had been replaced by busyness and programs. You know what? People ask me how they can pray for me. Can I, let me, I'm going to tell you how you can pray for me. First of all, you can always pray for my family. I appreciate that. Secondly, pray for me and the pastors here that we will never, ever, 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 ever program God out of this church. That we will never, ever, ever start doing things in our own strength or ability without seeking his face and hearing from the Lord first. That can happen to any church. It's easy to start letting our talents get in the way. We've always done it this way. Let's just talk about it. Let's do a Ben Franklin close. Looks good. Let's do it. How about this? Let's pray, seek God, and wait. Amen? There are at least, I don't know, I don't know how many, probably a dozen more ministries I like to have going on in this church, and all I do is pray. Matt and Jenny are an answer to prayer. I was praying about the college group for months, but I prayed God would raise somebody up, and God did. See, guys, I don't want to call anyone, then I've got to sustain them. Let God call them. He will sustain them. Amen? But we need to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. And the church at Sardis was busy and programs were happening. And they looked alive to the outside and they had a name, they had a reputation. Wow, things look really good, really good. And by the way, Jesus says you're dead. Help us, Lord, that we would never be a dead church. Amen? Godly character had been replaced by worldly reputation. The church had indeed lost sight of what was important and the very reason it existed. They are and we are the bride of Christ and our calling is to know Jesus and to make him known. Amen? The word there, hold fast, means to guard from loss, to keep an eye open, to prevent it from escaping. These truths had been all but forgotten. And though the church had gotten off track, so much so that Jesus referred to them as dead, the church had had begun in truth, could have remained in truth, and now God's telling them to wake up. And once they wake up and grab a hold of the word of God and grab a hold of the Holy Spirit, he says, then just hold on to them. And that's an exhortation for us this morning. Then he says, repent. The word means to turn around or to think differently. Okay, you're going this way, and you think you're doing well. But you know what? The Holy Spirit's not there. People aren't being saved. Lives aren't being transformed. It's time for you to turn around and go in the other direction. Jesus calls this dead church to repentance, to stop trusting in their good works and their busy calendar, and to turn and restore the gospel and the whole counsel of God to the authority over their lives. It says this in First, uh, First Thessalonians. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because you, when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in those in those of you who believe. 
Guys, it's when we veer from the word of God and cease to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit that the church starts to die, the movement becomes a memorial, and the buildings become monuments. So a church dies because it ceases to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. It ceases to be disciplined. It wanders from the truth. And then finally, it stops taking the promises of, of the promise of righteous judgment seriously, or they lose the fear of God. Look at the rest of verse 3. Therefore, if you will not watch, if you will not wake up, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. Therefore, in light of the, the, the Lord's exhortation, you know, you've been told to hold fast, to repent, to watch, to wake up. And with that comes a very stern warning as to what will happen if they do not heed these words. If you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief. How does a thief come upon you? In secret, in surprise, you don't expect it, quickly. All of those things are true. So Sardis, hearing this, would have struck a memory cord with them. Because twice in their history, when they were not paying attention, when they were not watching, their city that they thought was impregnable was overthrown. And now the Lord is telling them, it's not only going to happen to your city, it's going to happen to you as the church if you don't start watching, if you don't get your eyes back on the Lord. Jesus warns them of the great danger of not watching. They felt invincible before, and they were overthrown. Someone must keep watch over the truth lest we compromise and begin to die spiritually. That's true in the church, that's true in our homes, and it's true for us as individuals. We need to make the truth the standard. You know, it's not a popularity contest between pastor and the people in the church, and it's not a popularity contest between parents and their kids either. Amen? Truth is the standard, and we need to hold them to it. And he says, I will come upon you. Now, this could be speaking of immediate judgment, which I believe it was, but also the rapture of the church. In either case, it's a clear exhortation to watch. It says in Matthew 24, this is in the New Living Translation. I like how it sounded. It says, but if the servant is evil and thinks, my master won't come back for a while, and begins oppressing the other servants and partying and getting drunk, well, the master will return unannounced and unexpected, and he will tear the servant apart and banish him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. How does that sound? It's not good. Guys, we need to be looking up. Sardis' overconfidence led to neglect and laziness, resulting in their defeat at the hands of their enemies, and the church in Sardis is being warned not to fall into the same trap. A lack of diligence and holding fast to the truth will result in either defeat at the hands of an enemy or righteous judgment at the hand of God. Now, Bill took some time with that web thing, so we're going to go a few minutes over, and where are you going? You're eating here anyway, okay? Amen? I didn't hear any amens of that. Amen? All right, thank you. All right. Breathing life into a dead church, a church dies because it ceases to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. It ceases to be disciplined. It wanders from the truth, and it stops taking the promise of righteous judgment seriously. Now, here's the promise rewards for the faithful remnant. Have you ever felt, over, have you ever felt overwhelmed? Have you ever felt like you're one of the few people that loves God in a, in a city? Hello? At work? Wherever you might be? Here's the good news. There's a promise to the faithful few. Amen? God knows, and God's got a calling on our lives. So the first promise reward is intimate fellowship with God. Look at verse 4. I have a few names. 
A few names. Even among the dead church in Sardis, there was a faithful remnant, but there were only a few names. You know, in Pergamos and Thyatira, it seems that there were a few bad among the good, but in Sardis, it appears that there are a few good among the bad. And he says there, even in Sardis. I thought of even in Sodom. Even in San Francisco, right? I'm not picking on the city, it's just a reality. The reality is that no matter how wicked a place may be, God will almost always have a faithful remnant that is there. And these are words of encouragement to those who remain faithful and surrounded by wickedness and perversion. And again, it was remarkable because this city was so immoral, yet there were still some there who were Christians, who were true believers. Even in a city as wicked as Sardis, there were some who had not defiled themselves by joining into the sin. It says there, look what he says, there are even a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments. And they, walk, they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Why does Jesus refer to defiled garments? In the pagan worship, even in those days, you could not worship if your garments were a little bit dirty. And so here he's even making the, the, the comparison that, look, we can't come before God in our filth. We must come to him holy. And the only way we can come to him holy is through the shed blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. Amen? He said they haven't defiled their garments. They haven't turned over and followed in the sin of the world that's around them. Instead, their heart and their passion, their desire is to serve me no matter what goes on around them. They're a faithful remnant. The remnant in Sardis had not compromised with a pagan society, nor had they grown comfortable or complacent. It was this devoted spiritual remnant that held the future of the church's ministry in its hands. And praise God for the faithful remnants in godless cities and villages around the world who do not compromise, who do not run away, but remain, again, in, in the hopes of reaching the lost and bringing revival to a city that desperately needs Jesus. I hear this often. I'm leaving Santa Cruz because I don't want to raise my kids here. I understand that. I really do. But you make sure that God's leading you away and you're not running away. Amen? Because we need Christians here. We need people to move here with a heart for God, not run away because they see how godless the city can be. The rest of the text says, And they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. They shall walk with me. What's the blessing of being faithful when the world around you isn't? Intimate fellowship with the Lord. You get to walk with Him. Can there be a greater reward than that? You get to walk with Jesus. That's why it's called the Christian walk. We're walking with him. The picture of close fellowship and friendship is seen in Enoch, who walked with God and was not, for God took him. Guys, that's the reward for being faithful. The Christian in Sardis who forsake the sinful compromise of their city will be rewarded with a closer and more intimate walk with the Lord. And there is an intimacy that comes from God, comes for us with God from holy living. Matthew 5, 8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. In John it says, He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. In white, for they are worthy. Are we worthy because of what we've done? What's the answer? In white, because we are worthy because of what, our, what the Son did in our place. Worthy is the Lamb. 
Isaiah 4, 4, 64 says, But we are all as unclean things, and are, 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 as an unclean thing, and all our righteousness is as filthy rags. So the best we can do is filthy rags in the sight of God. Do you understand that? That's why a works-based salvation won't work. But praise God for His grace. It says in Revelation, And to her it was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. He's speaking of the bride of Christ. In Revelation 7, it says, Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who came out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That's how we are made worthy. Because worthy is the Lamb, and us being linked to Him makes us worthy. Our good works don't save us. But they're a reflection that indeed we've been saved and been redeemed by the one who can cleanse us. One who is truly saved and walking in the power of the Holy Spirit is able by the grace of God to walk in obedience to him. Even when you're surrounded by a godless world. This is the faithful remnant that he's talking about. And then finally in verse 5. Promised rewards for the faithful remnant. Not only intimate fellowship with the Lord but assurance of eternal life. And this verse is great to lead right into our time of communion. Look at verse 5. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Now, this is a verse that scares people to death, and it ought to. He who overcomes, I will not blot out his name. Now, some people read that and go, well, now, wait a minute. So if I'm not overcoming at the moment, does my name get erased? Ever thought about that? People ever brought that up to you? We're clothed in white garments by a shed blood, and there is a book of life. Do you know that? And do you know when we get to heaven, the book of life is going to be opened up. And when it's opened up, either your name is in there or it's not. And this is all that matters. If your name is there, you go to heaven. If your name is not, you don't. How do I get my name in there? got to get my name in there. I, I got left out of the last phone book, but I got to get my name in there. Right? We get our name in the book by confessing our sin, being born again. It's the book of the born again. There's two books mentioned in the Bible. There's the book of Adam and the book of Jesus Christ. The book of Adam is the book we're all in because we've been born. And the book of Jesus Christ, or the book of life, is the book we're all in when we've been born again. Amen? Born of the flesh and born of the spirit. If you're born of the flesh, you're living on the planet, but you need to be born again. Now, in the ancient world, the death of a cr- death or a criminal conviction could blot a citizen's name out of the registry. And so this meant something to them. But I want you to notice something here. This will help, hopefully, comfort you. He's giving them assurance, not a threat. Here's what he says. And I will not blot out his name from the book of life. Those who overcome, those who remain faithful, you have the assurance of heaven. I'm not going to. He doesn't say I will if you don't. He says I will not blot out your name. Now, I want to close with this because I know there's some questions. And we're going to take a moment to do this. So like I said, we got food. We're going to feed you after you can wait a few minutes, right? So this, does this mean someone can lose their salvation? If their name can be blotted out. 
There's five places in Scripture where it speaks of names being blotted out, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Again, the context here is assurance. He's assuring them that their name will not be blotted out. But we should consider the book of life. It says in Revelation 20, And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. Books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things that were written in the book. There is a book of life, and it will be opened. And it determines whether we go to heaven or to hell. And anyone not found, it says in Revelation 20, 15, written in the book of life, was cast into the lake of fire. There is a book of life, and knowing our names are written there should bring us great joy. It says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, this is in Luke, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Do you know, if you've been born again, your name is written in heaven. That's better than anything else. Amen? This is the assurance of salvation. Now, quickly, the five references. Moses, back in, in Exodus 32 and 33, there's two references together. When he came down the mountain and they were partying and they were out of control and they were drunken and they were worshiping the, the golden calf that Aaron, his brother, said just popped out, remember? Nice assistant pastor you got working for you, right? You go up and hang out with God for a few days and you come back and they're partying to a golden calf. But he came down, and and I love the heart of Moses. He goes back to the Lord and says, Lord, if you will forgive them, you can blot my name out of the book. Wow. But the Lord said, I'm not going to do it. He says, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of the book. Wait a minute. Pastor Dave, you're saying that it's assurance. It says in Psalms, let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the righteous. In Revelation 5, 3, 5, we just read it. It says, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and his angels. If anyone takes away the words of this book, it says in Revelation 22 of this prophecy, God shall take away his name from the part of the book of life and from the holy city and from things written in this book. Now you read this and you start to think, okay, now wait a minute. There's people's names being blotted out. Now what does that mean? I'm going to give you my, my clearest answer. I don't fully know. I'm just telling you. I don't know. Here's what I can tell you is this. It could be that their names were never written there, which is what I tend to believe. But then you've got examples. I'm going to give you one, and again, like I said, we'll close with this. Here's an example, and how do you deal with this? How many of you have ever heard of Charles Templeton before? Not very many of you. Okay, a generation ago, he was deeply involved in the foundation of Youth for Christ that impacted the nation for Jesus. Chuck Smith said that he was one of the most dynamic and powerful ministers that he had ever heard, and he would go anywhere to hear him. Many people received Jesus at his meetings, and he was an associate of Billy Graham in his early years. But he recently wrote a book, it's been a few years now, where he totally denounces his belief in Jesus Christ, denounces that belief that there is a God, and says he is an atheist, and now his entire focus in life is to rescue people from the very Jesus he once brought them to. Now, do you think that man's going to heaven? The answer is no. But wait a minute. What about all the good works? Did he lose his salvation? Not going to heaven. My personal feeling, he was never saved. People can pretend to be something that they're not. But they can't pretend forever, right? But I love what Raul Reese says. If you're not abiding, you're not going. Right? (laughs) 
his whole point is this. Look, I don't believe I can lose my salvation, but I think it wouldn't be a bad idea to live like we could. What do I mean by that? You know what? We ought to live every day knowing that he has forgiven us, redeemed us, and no one will ever snatch us out of his hand. That's what the Bible says. Amen. But I certainly wanted, wouldn't want to spend from this day for the next 30 years in total rebellion against God and rejecting him and stand before him on judgment day. Uh, not so much. Right? Well, Pastor Dave, I thought you said you didn't think people could lose their salvation. I don't. I don't believe that. But I also believe that those who are truly saved will endure till the end. Amen? Doesn't mean we'll be perfect, but we will endure. And then he says this, and I love this, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. What? We confess him here, right? Aren't we called to do that? He's going to confess you before his father and the angels on judgment day. We should have a few more hallelujahs than just the one I heard in the back. (laughs) Amen? He's going to say, enter in my servant, Dave. What? Am I worthy of that? Absolutely not. Well done, now good and faithful servant. Aren't those the seven words we all want to hear? Isn't that the ultimate 401k plan? Amen? (laughs) That's what we want more than anything else. It says in Matthew, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father in heaven. When we stand up and confess him at an altar call, and not just at an altar call, not just the day that we're saved, but from that day forward. Guys, we don't just confess him in a room surrounded by Christians. We need to confess him in a world that doesn't love him. He hung on a cross for us. We need to stand up in the world for him. Amen? That's the calling God has placed upon our life. This is an amazing promise. It simply makes sense that, that we should be willing to confess his name. And it's amazing to me that he would confess us. When he could so easily be ashamed of us, couldn't he? But he's not. What a gracious God. And then finally he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And again, this message was not just for that church, but for all the churches. And I know we've gone a little bit over. We're going to go into our time of communion now. But as the, the, the guys get the elements together, and they're going to get ready to pass them out to you, um, I want to just take a moment and ask you, don't worry about the person next to you, behind you, in front of you, the person that came with you. Is your name written in the book of life? Have you been born again? Do you know for sure that you're going to heaven? Have you confessed him before men? And I don't mean just to make him my savior to get the get out of hell free card and then live like the world. I mean, have you made him the Lord of your life? The Bible says today is the day of salvation. You were brought here not by chance, but by divine appointment. The Lord loves you. Now, we're going to take communion, and when we do, that's for believers. But you know what? You can be a believer before we take communion right now. Amen? So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you, and as we prepare to take these elements in remembrance of the cross of Calvary, Lord, I pray that those of us who know you, as we look back to the cross, we examine our own hearts before you, we look forward to the day we will have this with you in heaven. I pray for anybody here this morning that doesn't know you, that indeed today would be the day of salvation. The Lord, they would confess you before men, that you would confess them before your Father in heaven. And if you're here today and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, and you want to know for sure that you're going to heaven, that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, again, today is the day of salvation. What must you do to be saved? 
It's this simple. You confess you're a sinner. You ask God to forgive you. You make him Lord of your life. That's it. You confess you're a sinner. How many people in here are sinners? How many have ever sinned before? Raise your hand. We got part one done. Now, if you're a sinner, have you confessed him as Savior? If you haven't, you need to do that today. And so I'm going to give you an opportunity right now. I'm going to pray a simple prayer with you right before we pass out the elements. You can take communion with us as someone who's been born again. But before you do that, you need to make a confession before the world. And how are we going to do that? Just I want you to stand to your feet right where you are so I can pray with you. And you can know for sure you're going to heaven. Is there anybody at all? Today's the day of salvation. Lord loves you guys. Don't worry about anybody else. On judgment day, you won't be worried about anybody else. Anybody at all. Lord, we thank you and we praise you. And Lord, as we go to this time of communion now, may we take this time to just reflect back on the cross of Calvary. As your word says, as often as we do this, do this in remembrance of you. We thank you for your grace and your love for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.